Hello, I'm Sue Nelson and this is the Planet Earth podcast from an Oxfordshire stretch of countryside where we'll be discussing forestry and climate change. There's also the link between palm trees in Antarctica millions of years ago and rising carbon dioxide levels now and the perils of studying seabirds. In some respects this is the trickiest bit. You have a 15 foot long carbon fibre pole with 3 kilograms of very angry gannet at the end. And you can find out how they avoid that a little later on. Forests cover almost one third of the Earth's landmass and play a key role in the health of our planet. They regulate climate change by removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere through photosynthesis and storing the carbon. And forests also provide important habitats for a range of biodiversity. In London, at the end of this month, there's a climate change adaptation strategies in forestry workshop, and I'm joined by one of its organisers, Carsten Schoenroger from the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology in Wallingford. Carsten, climate change adaptation strategy, it's also known as future proofing. What does future proofing forests actually mean? Well, we're talking about particularly commercial forestry where foresters are concerned with the fact that plantations they put down into the ground today have a turnover time from 50 years, 80 years, sometimes 100 years. And so the trees they're planting now will experience the climate which we expect to be here in 50 and 100 years. So the question is whether current planting strategies to source the seed material locally is actually the best strategy there is. Future-proofing might mean to go to areas in the range of the plants they're interested in, which today experience a climate which we expect here in the future. When I think of forests, I think of spruce and and pine and the sort of forests you might get in Germany, for example. What sort of forests are you in particular thinking of? What sort of trees? Our project is particularly aimed at sessile oak trees, which is one of the two native species which we also have here in Britain. These are hardwood trees, and there's a particular interest to grow these trees for the timber industry. It is also the tree in Europe which supports the highest biodiversity. On oak trees, we would find across Europe possibly 700 different species of insects, which is by far more than any other tree species that we have. Now, why concern yourselves with insects, for example, when, when you think of the amount of carbon stored by trees that if the forests are removed then surely it's more worrying about the amount of carbon that's released into the atmosphere rather than say an insect species go extinct. Forests are of course not an isolated system by itself and insects in forests might be pest insects and actually damage the function that we want or there might be predators of pest insects and therefore be beneficial to the sort of ecosystem services which we might want to promote. So how do you go about future-proofing in terms of an experimental way? How do you determine whether oak trees will be able to withstand a change of climate? Well, in our project, we were inspired by a particular strategy which was published in the literature called climate matching. In the climate matching scenarios, we use forecasts for climates to be expected in the UK in 50 or 80 years and we look for areas across Europe where that climate already exists. Okay so what will the UK 
be like in 40 or 50 years? Which climate does it most match? It will depend on whether the carbon dioxide output will increase with no further limitations or whether we have a low CO2 scenario. But the matching areas for, for instance, southern England would be the Bordeaux area in France under a low carbon dioxide scenario, but central Italy for a high CO2 scenario. That's quite a difference. It's quite a difference, and we expect those trees to perform well in 50 to 80 years, but of course, as they go in the ground now, we might expect them not doing very well. So you've planted some oak trees then in a, in a specific area in northern France. What are you actually looking at then in terms of determining whether the oak trees are doing well or not? The trees were planted by collaborators of ours in France, an organisation called INRA. It's the largest trial of its kind. It's a million trees in four locations. And we worked in one of them, so 250,000 of them. And we looked at trees which come from 20 different locations in Europe, as far away as Ireland in the west, Denmark in the north, and Georgia and Turkey in the south. Our colleagues at INRA looked at every single tree and scored them for the time of the year when they come into leaf. They scored them for the growth, for the form they grow in, how many branches they have. What did you find? So our first interest was whether these trees are locally adapted to the climates in the area where the seeds came from. And yes, there's strong evidence that these trees differ according to the place where they come from. The second then was whether we can take the phenotypes, so all the different growth parameters and the time when they come into bud and to leaf, would determine the insect communities which are associated with them. And that seems to be true as well. In fact, we can take a step out. We can take the climate variables from the places where these seeds came from and we can predict how different these insect communities might be. The more complicated part of all this is to predict exactly how the communities differ and to possibly make predictions about individual species of insects and whether they might become more or less abundant when they're feeding on these foreign provenances, as we call them, oak trees. So who's going to be most interested in the result of your research? Well, we hope that both the forestry community, who makes plans as to what good planting strategies are, would be interested, but also the conservation area, the biodiversity sector in general. So better forest management will come out of this in order to effectively protect future forests. Future-proofing, there's that word, future-proofing. Absolutely. Carsten Schoenroger, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to the Planet Earth podcast. We're going to head to Grasshome now for the latest of our audio diaries. This rocky island off the southwest coast of Wales is home to almost 39,000 breeding pairs of gannets and not much else. Steve Vautier, a marine ecologist at Plymouth University, is studying the seabirds to investigate their distribution, behaviour and feeding and how they're influenced by environmental conditions. The results will be used to answer much bigger questions about marine conservation. Steve's team of Tony Bicknell and Sam Cox stay on the island several times a year where they tag the gannets with GPS receivers and miniature cameras. And here's a typical day. We've been working up in the gannet colony for a couple of hours now and the colony's its typical frenetic self. 
the noise is one of the big features of a gannet colony. It really just kind of sort of incessant noise of birds toing and froing, announcing their presence as they're coming in, calling to one another. And the whole time there's a constant wheel of birds flying around over my head. And that's, that's a bird you can hear just coming in there, announcing the fact that it's coming into its nest and essentially saying, get out of my way. It doesn't smell very nice. But then again, it's not really surprising when there's about 100,000 gannets producing an awful lot of guano. I'm here with Greg Morden, who's the warden of Ramsey and Grassholm. I just thought it'd be quite interesting to get him to give us a background about the expansion of the gannetry. The first records of any birds being here at all come from the late 1800s. The best estimate then was around 200 pairs. By the time the RSPB bought the island in 1948, that had increased to around 7,000 pairs. The last census we did was in 2009. The estimate then was just shy of 40,000. It was 39,292 to be exact. (laughs) Don't get these things right. (laughs) It's done every uh, five years now from aerial surveys, so it'll be interesting to see what the next one in 2014, which I think corresponds with the nationwide gannetry survey gives. Now, how much further can this colony increase? Tony's just spotted a bird with green sheep dye on its head um, that we caught the last time we were out. It's got a GPS logger on. We use a long carbon fibre pole with a little shepherd's crook on the end and we just hook the birds around the neck and haul them in with a pair of gloves and goggles so we don't get pecked a bit. The only thing is is that when you first do it, the birds are pretty amenable. But when you've caught them once already and you're going back to recapture them to remove devices, they tend to get a little bit more wary. We're just hoping that Tony's going to be successful and score with this bird, so to speak. Fingers crossed we're going to be getting ourselves a GPS logger, which is going to tell us what this bird has been up to over the last week or so, where it's been, where it's been foraging, and how long those foraging trips have been, which is kind of where we started with this project, was just trying to understand a bit about where these birds go at sea, what kind of distances they travel, what kind of search behaviours they use. And it's kind of developed a little bit more in the last few years to trying to understand things like if and why the sexes show differences in foraging behaviour but also potentially to understand whether there are differences in foraging behaviour from one year to the next and whether that can tell us something about the environmental conditions in, in the Celtic Sea from one year to the next. The theory being is that if resources are abundant, then perhaps the birds don't have to travel quite so far or spend quite so long at sea than during years when there's rather less food and they have to travel further or look harder in the same areas to try and find sufficient food to to not only meet their needs, but meet the needs of their chicks. Tony's heading in. He's just hooked it around the neck, and he's just hauling it back in. In some respects, this is the trickiest bit. You have a 15-foot-long carbon fibre pole with three kilograms of very angry gannet at the end, but Tony's done it. Yeah, he's played a blinder, actually. He's done really well there. He's, he's caught what's quite a nervous bird. Nice one, Tony. Take a bow. So Tony's got another gannet for uh, deploying a camera and a GPS on, and Sam's just 
attaching a, a digital camera to the base of the tail. Can you explain to us how the bird's behaving so people can get a sense of, of the process that the bird's experiencing? Well, at the moment, <laughs> I'm in control of the bird and um, I have hold of its neck because, as you can imagine, these uh, gannets have quite sharp bills for catching fish. Um, so I want to keep it as far away from my face as possible. As well as that, I've got my, my other hand across its wings and it's sitting on my lap. So I'm able to give Sam access to the, uh, the tail on the back where she can attach the camera and the GPS. So Tony, how does the GPS differ from a kind of a typical GPS that you might buy if you were out hill walking or something like that? The size, it's basically about... 15 grams in weight I think compared to the size of the gannet which is I think roughly about 2 kilograms it's a very small part of uh, body weight It's 6.30 we've just finished the last bird of this session I think we've put out 15 GPS devices 9 of those have got time depth recorders and 6 of them have got digital cameras on as well we're just going to head away from the main colony and just go back to the little quieter part on the east side of the island where we're going to pitch our tents and stick the, the stove on for a, for a bite to eat, a bit of pasta or something. It's a really it's a stunning evening. It's really beautiful. It's really quite warm. And, and it's, the sea is like a mill pond. It's absolutely flat calm. I have to say, it's not everyone's cup of tea. A stinking, noisy seabird colony, but there's actually not many better places in the world, in my view. Yeah, it's bloody awesome. It definitely sounds like it. Steve Vautier on the tiny rocky island and RSPB reserve of Grass Home. We'll ask Steve to send us some pictures of his exploits and those perfumed gannets and put them on our Facebook page. We began the podcast talking about forests in Europe and we're going to end at the other end of the planet with a vision of palm trees on Antarctica. Climate scientists recently found evidence that the southernmost continent was once a very different world between 34 and 56 million years ago. The research, reported in the journal Nature, is part of an international project to examine the Earth's climate during the Eocene period because by looking back into the past... They're examining the potential future of climate change. Dr James Bendel from the School of Geographical and Earth Sciences at the University of Glasgow was one of the paper's authors. So we met up in a large, warm glass house to remind ourselves what Antarctica was once like. We're in the Royal Botanic Gardens in Glasgow and we are in a, an area where there's tree ferns and we're surrounded by palm trees. It's probably 22, 23 or so degrees centigrade and it's very humid and very warm. And it's extremely warm and sticky and about probably as far from Antarctica as you would think. Yes, but if you went back in time 50 million years or so to the edge of the Antarctic, you'd look out on uh, an array of vegetation that would look very much like this and you'd probably be experiencing very similar temperatures. How do you know this? I took part in an expedition two years ago, an ocean drilling program expedition to the margin of the Antarctic, an area called Wilkesland. We drilled down through four kilometres of water and a kilometre of sediment and then recovered rocks and sediments from a period called the early Eocene 50 million years ago. 
And it's a period of time that is being studied by climatologists as an analogue for where we might be going in the future. It's, it was what we call a greenhouse world. There was very high levels of CO2 at that time. We didn't know much about the Antarctic until that expedition. Some of the results that we've found, some of the headline results that we're, we're now publishing, show that there was an incredible subtropical assemblage of vegetation on the margin of the Antarctic. And was this known before? No, not from the East Antarctic. The interesting thing is that we've recovered pollen, and that's work that's been led by our colleagues in, in Germany and Frankfurt. And at Glasgow, working together with colleagues in the Netherlands, we've been looking at these molecular fossils, so organic compounds that are preserved in the same sediments. And those two approaches have been very interesting. They've worked very well together. The vegetation assemblage tells us that it was this subtropical world. We also um, recovered these pollen of plants called bombacaceae, which are very characteristic uh, rainforest trees with a huge sort of splayed uh, trunks at the bottom. How long did this tropical period of Antarctica last? Well, we only see the really warmth-loving species like the palm trees and the bombacaceae on the Antarctic coastline during the very peak warmth of the early Eocene. Within a few million years, they disappear and they get replaced by Northophagus, which is southern beech tree, more like the kind of temperate vegetation you might see in, in New Zealand. This was existing in the mountains, but it came down and took over the coastlines as the climate was cooling. The climate was cooling at that time because... Tasmania and um, Australia break away from the Antarctic. We get the opening up of a, an ocean gateway and a new cold ocean current surrounding the Antarctic, and it's, the climate starts to cool. And then it heads towards millions of years later, more like the Antarctic that we know today. Yeah, then by 34 million years before present, we see another really fast stepwise cooling, and the continent glaciates and it loses its vegetation. So now that you know then what Antarctica was like all that time ago and at a time when its carbon dioxide levels were high or similar to, to what they are now, are you effectively seeing the future of Antarctica like that again? If we reached CO2 emissions that were similar to that time and we let the climate system and the vegetation in Antarctica get to equilibrium, then yes, eventually it might take several thousand years or so, but yes, that is the direction that we will travel in if we continue with unabated emissions. When you were doing this research, when it was probably cold, icy, could you envisage <laughs> that you would uncover a world that's actually far more like this stuffy, steamy, tropical plant house that we're in now? It is amazing. A couple of times we had to move away from the area the ship was drilling in because we'd had quite large icebergs that had been coming too close to the ship. So we were in that you know, southern ocean, big ocean swells, grey skies, really cold, icebergs around. And then when you're drilling through these geological sediments, you are effectively becoming a time traveller. And it is amazing to, now that we have the data after several years of work, to look at that data and to imagine this, this world where it was. It never got below about 10 degrees centigrade in the winter. It was at least as warm as 20 degrees in the summer, maybe warmer. And then really, I think aesthetically, it's the vegetation assemblages, knowing that there was palm trees and these bombacaceae trees and tree ferns is just an amazing thing to think about. 
It is indeed. James Bendel from the University of Glasgow and a potential warning to what might happen again to Antarctica if CO2 levels continue to rise in the future. This has been the Planet Earth podcast for the Natural Environment Research Council from Woodlands near the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology in Oxfordshire. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page and Twitter feed. I'm Sue Nelson. Thanks for listening.